0: Hey, Real Life Church, God bless you, it's Pastor Jim. Happy Palm Sunday. Today is the day in which we remember an event of 2,000 years ago in which Jesus went into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. And we talk about this as though it's a celebration. And in churches around the world on this Sunday, children march through the sanctuaries waving palm branches and talking about uh, how great Jesus is. It's like uh, we're a bunch of cheerleaders for Jesus. If that's all you see, you kind of miss the significance of the event. I mean, this is a dramatic event and even a heavy event because he's going into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. He's about to be crucified. And, And even more so, the people who are cheering for him are cheering for the wrong things. It sounds to us like they're just excited about who Jesus is. But in fact, they're excited about what they want Jesus to do. And Jesus is going to do something completely different. And that is in part why they turn on him, why the crowds would cheer his name as he marches in and just a few days later shout, crucify him, crucify him. So today we're going to look at this, this famous story again, these passages in the gospel of Luke, which describe Jesus entry into Jerusalem. And as we look at why the crowds cheered for him, we might do well to ask ourselves, why do we cheer for him? Are we cheering for the right things? Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you came and walked the earth for us, that you lived a perfect and grace filled life. We repent for failing to recognize you then and now. We thank you for the the suffering that you underwent in the last week of your life to endure the cross, to pay for our sins. That we might be forgiven and set free. All we can do now is receive that good gift and invite you in. Jesus, come into our lives. We thank you for being our Savior. We ask you to be our Lord. Now open our hearts and our minds to your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, let's open to these famous passages in the Gospel of Luke uh, at, uh, verse, at chapter 19, verse 28. And we're going to look at Jesus' entry in Jerusalem and what it meant then and what it means now. Luke 19, 28, listen to God's Word. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, "Why are you untying the colt?" They replied, "The Lord needs it." They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Now, this may feel like just a peripheral detail. Jesus goes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. There's a couple things to realize here. This is shockingly ironic. You expect a champion to ride into the city that he's conquering on a, on a horse or on a camel or on a chariot. This is the arrival of a king. They are expecting Jesus to come into Jerusalem on the Independence Day weekend, Passover, and throw out Herod to become the king of Jerusalem, the king of Judea. They are expecting this to be the groundwork for an uprising against Rome. He comes in riding on a donkey. It would be like expecting a, 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 a president or a, a movie star to come come driving up to a, a gala event and a red carpet. And instead of riding up on a limousine, they come in on like a little Volkswagen bug. They come in on a, a car that's just not right for the occasion or right for the person. So, so notice him riding in on a donkey is, is not inconsequential. It's going to be... Kind of an eyesore. On top of that, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy spoken by the prophet Zechariah 500 years before Jesus. Let me read you this. And understand when Zechariah preached this, Zechariah was a wild eyed prophet speaking utterances that would have sounded like nonsense to his contemporaries. This prophecy made no sense in Zechariah's day. Zechariah said, Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, which probably means the River Jordan, to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. In Zechariah's day, this prophecy has absolutely no connection to anything go, going on. Jerusalem, you're going to receive a king riding on a donkey whose reign will extend to the ends of the earth, which is not what they expected of Jerusalem or the king of Jerusalem. And because of the, the blood of my covenant, which was probably a reference to the, the blood of animals sacrificed on an altar which would be confirmed in the blood of Jesus on the cross. Because of the blood of my covenant, you will be rec- rescued from a waterless pit. There's, there's one other place where Jesus refers to that. When he refers to, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man goes to hell and he is in a, a fiery pit where he says, uh, bring me just a drop of water. It is a, a waterless pit. But understand, 500 years before Jesus, this has no referent. It, it makes no sense. There's no clear th- thing that Zechariah could have been talking about. This would be like finding a key and carrying it around for 500 years later, and then you find a door into which the key fits. A door that was designed well after the key. That's how prophecies work. And so Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfills a prophecy 500 years Before him, Now, we're going to keep reading here. There are two striking contrasts going on. You're going to see the crowds cheering for Jesus and the Pharisees scolding Jesus or scolding the crowds. And look at the contrast drawn in this passage. Verse 36, as Jesus went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, understand the context. This is fascinating. This is actually an annual practice on the part of the Jewish people At the Passover festival, at their Independence Day holiday, they go into Jerusalem to celebrate it. It's a pilgrimage holiday, and everybody, if they're able-bodied, is supposed to go into Jerusalem. As they go, they remember the fact that they had been set free from slavery in Egypt a millennia before. They'd been set free from slavery in Egypt, and they sang songs which commemorated their freedom. This comes from Psalm 118. Uh, It was a a chanted psalm where as the people would go towards Jerusalem, they would recite it and people up ahead on the road or people at the gates of Jerusalem would answer back, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there was a a shout back and forth and back and forth. It it would be akin to us saying uh, on one side of the room, We've got Jesus, yes we do, we've got Jesus, how about you? And then the other side of the room rec- reciting back. It was, this, it was this chant that went back and forth. And Psalm 118 says, with boughs in hand, with palm branches, they go, to, they go to the gates, they go to Jerusalem. So the laying of branches in front of Jesus was part of their, their annual holiday of remembering freedom from slavery and reciting the Psalms. But Jesus was coming not to set them free from political power, as Moses had set them free from Egypt. He was not coming to set them free from Caesar and Herod and Rome. He was coming to set them free from sin, which had entered the world in the Garden of Eden. And to open up a door to hope that they would one day be reunited in the gardens of heaven. Jesus is doing something not national, but cosmic. And the crowds are cheering for him, but they miss it. They're cheering for the fact that they might have national freedom, when in fact, Jesus wants to give them cosmic freedom. And so the Pharisees uh, scold scold Jesus and say, tell the crowds to be quiet. The, The Pharisees are concerned about the religious order And they know the crowds can cause a a disruption, a disturbance that will potentially turn Rome against the Jewish people. And on top of that, it's a little bit blasphemous for them to treat Jesus like he's some divine figure. He's just a person and a person they don't like. So the Pharisees are at odds with the crowds. uh, And they turn to Jesus and say, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, if they were quiet, nature itself would recognize who I was. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now this again is a prophetic utterance. Jesus is talking about the future. And so here we are in around 30 A.D., and he's describing something that won't happen until 70 A.D. Because in 70 A.D. the Romans will indeed encircle the city of Jerusalem, build a wall around it, and crucify everyone who tried to escape. Eventually they would level the city and bring everything to the ground, including the temple. So, so here's a second contrast. The crowds are cheering. The crowds are happy. The crowds are having a party. This is their holiday. And Jesus sees them celebrating. And he weeps. He weeps because they are cheering for the wrong thing. Because the right thing is Hidden from their eyes, he says. They don't see what's actually going on. God has come to them and they've missed it. Not just by rejecting him, which will happen in a couple of days, but by embracing him for the wrong things. They want him to come to them and give them national sovereignty and freedom from Rome. And that was not what Jesus promised and that's not what he came to deliver. And that is why, just a few days later, they would turn on him. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people... Hung on his words. Now, notice the notice the stark contrasts that occur in the passage. The Pharisees are at odds with the crowds because what the crowds are longing for is national deliverance at the hands of a a messianic figure. The Pharisees want a religious order in which they're on top and the peace is kept. Because right now they have a pretty good thing going. And staging a rebellion against Rome might not go well for them. So the Pharisees and the crowds are not longing for the same things. On top of that, there's a contrast between the crowds and Jesus himself. Because they're cheering and he's weeping. They're celebrating the fact that they think he's delivering what they want. And he's weeping because they're missing what he actually came to deliver. There there are all these messy contrasts in this weirdly celebratory image. There's actually only one coherence. There's actually only one place where, where two things are in perfect agreement. There's a perfect agreement between the psalms that they are chanting and the rocks that Jesus said would cry out. That's the one place where there's a perfect agreement in this story. The psalm says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The psalms are about Jesus. And when the Pharisees tell Jesus to silence the crowds, Jesus says, if they were quiet, the rocks would cry out. Because two things in this passage are clear about what's going on. The foundation, the bedrock of the word of God, And the stones beneath their feet. God revealed in Scripture and God revealed in nature. Both know exactly who He is. They know that the identity of Jesus is objective, not subjective. It doesn't matter what the crowds think or what the crowds want. It doesn't matter what the Pharisees have established or are trying to preserve. Jesus' identity is not what people want it to be. It's objective, not subjective. The scriptures know who he is, and creation itself could cry out and identify him. His identity is is objective, not subjective. In the last century, one of the most prolific Protestant theologians was a guy named Karl Barth. And Karl Barth uh, helped write a document against Nazi Germany called the Barman Declaration. And in it, in that document, uh, he took a stand on one particular word that he said was, was important. He says when we identify him, we should not say Jesus, our Lord. We should say Jesus, the Lord. Because his lordship is not subjective. It doesn't depend on us and our opinions of him. His lordship is objective. It's a fact. It's written in the rocks. The reason this is so important to you and I today is because you actually might want a source of of goodness which is objective, not subjective. You you actually might want an, an ethical foundation that's written in the rocks. A lot of people today look at what's going on in Russia and say, Vladimir Putin is unethical. President of Russia invading Ukraine, he's unethical. That's actually not correct. He does have an ethic and he is following it. You might not like his ethic, you might say his ethic is evil, but it's not that he's without an ethic, he has one and he thinks it's right. And his ethic says that the best thing that we can do for the world is to make Russia great. Restore it to its, its once, glorious days where its land was greater and its population was higher. Uh, he, what he's following is an ethical system known as consequentialism which is an ethical system that says the only thing that matters is that you end up in a good place and the ends justify the means. So if you have to get kind of messy along the way to get to something good it's okay. The consequences are the only thing people are going to remember in history so if you, to, if you have to bend a few rules to get there, if you have to decide uh, between the lesser of two evils, go ahead and do that do the lesser of two evils in the meantime, as long as it ends well. That, that's the best you can do. And there's a certain kind of consequentialism called tribalism, where, where the consequences you care about most are the consequences are for your own tribe, for, for yourself, or your family, or your community, or your nation. Because all the other tribes in the world are in competition with each other. The other tribes are trying to take over your tribe. So the best thing you could do is defend your own people. And if you do that well, and in the end, your tribe is preserved, then you've done what's right. And that is actually an ethical system that a lot of people hold. And the president of Russia is following that ethical system. It's, it's not correct to say that he's unethical. It's more correct to say that he's evil because he's following an ethical system that is corrupt, but it is an ethical system. And, and here's why that's so important today you may hold to the same ethical system he does. You might hold to a kind of consequentialism that says, as long as me or my family or my, my group ends up in the best possible place, that's the best I can do. And I may have to make some compromises along the way to get there. I may have to settle for the lesser of two evils in order to arrive at a best possible situation for me or my family or my kids. But, it, but if I do the best I can for them, then I've done what's right. See, you got a couple of choices there. You, you either think Putin is, is wrong because his tribe is a different tribe than yours, and you want your tribe to win and not his. But, but that's kind of arbitrary. There, there's nothing that makes your tribe right. There's nothing fundamental there that, that makes it objectively the case that your tribe should win or survive. I think most of us want something better than that. I think most of us want to, want a kind of life, a kind of uh, an ethical system that's grounded in what is objective and not subjective. Most of us want to know that there is real good in the world, that there is really a right way to live life and that we can achieve it, that we can get there, that we can find it. Most of us don't want to just settle for, well, I happen to be born here and so I hope my team wins. But that was the ethic of the crowds who gathered at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We want our tribe to win. We want Judea to throw out Rome. And if we have to make some oily compromises along the way, if we have to choose the lesser of two evils, then let's do it. Because if we come to a day where Judea is free from Rome again, that will have all been worth it. That was the ethic of the Pharisees. What matters most is our tribe. We want a religious order in which we're on top. We want to preserve that, and we can't have some some ruffian messiah walking along, hanging out with all the wrong people, and undermining our authority. And if we have to make some oily compromises along the way to get him out of the way, then in the end, it's best for our people. That is a prevailing ethic in our modern world, and it is an easy temptation to fall into. But my guess is, that's not what you really want. What we want is a sense of right and wrong that are objective, that are written in the rocks. And that came to us in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus' lordship is objective, not subjective. He created us in the beginning. Our purpose in life, is found in our design, in what we're made for. And in the end, we will stand in front of God again and be judged for who we were and how we lived. In the end, I want to be able to say, I stood on what was right. I stood on the objectivity of Jesus' Lordship. He lived for me, he died for me, and he rose again. And that's all that matters. I don't, in the end, want to say, "Well, I." I did the best that I could, and I I hope the the end justifies the means. Jesus invites you and I in this world today to make the affirmation that the crowds could not make 2,000 years ago, to see what the Pharisees could not see, that God had stepped down onto the earth and revealed himself to us, that his identity was objective, It was revealed in the promises and prophecies of Scripture. And it was confirmed by creation itself that knew him when he walked upon it. Jesus is the Lord, not just our Lord. That week he would die on the cross to set us free from sin. If you believe that he died for you, then any debt you owe to him, any guilt you carry, is paid for and taken away. When we believe that He died for us, we affirm that it is objective that He was the Lord of all creation. And that invitation is open to you and I here today. That we would not just affirm Him because we think He's going to deliver to us what we want, happiness or healthy family or prosperity or healing or what have you, but instead that He would invite us into a relationship with Him where we recognize who He is. We affirm that His identity is objective, not subjective. We surrender to Him, and we call Him Lord. It's like this. Um, I had a friend um, a season ago uh, who was a pastor, and... um, Uh, He liked to tell this story uh, about his childhood. He said there was this time where he was a teenager and um, he wanted to go to a Christian camp for, um, I think it was for a weekend. And uh, his dad, who was not a Christian, said no. Um, And the problem was he had no way of getting to the camp without being able to borrow his dad's car. So he had asked his dad, can I borrow the car and go to this Christian camp? And the dad, who cared neither for camps nor Christianity, said no. And so my friend was at this point where he was a little bit desperate. He knew that he couldn't get around his dad. And so he stopped and he prayed. And he said, "Um, Jesus, I'm gonna ask him one more time. And if he says no, I'll assume that's not just from him. I'll assume that's from you. There's nothing else I, I can do. I'm gonna put this in your hands. So he went to his dad and he said, can I borrow the car keys and go to camp this weekend? And his dad said, no. And my friend said, at that point, I felt a great burden lifted off my shoulders. I felt like I had put it in the hands that I needed to put it in, and I was, I was good. And I turned to walk away. And at that moment, my dad called to me. And I turned around. And he took the car keys and he threw them into my hands. And that's how I got permission to go. He says, I I surrendered it not just to my dad, I surrendered it to God. And I let God decide. And he said, as things would turn out, it was at that camp that weekend that I met my future wife. I knew him as an old man in his uh, elderly years with white hair. And he still told that story. Uh, with, with a smile. He cherished that story. You and I are invited into a relationship with Jesus like that, a relationship of surrender, where we don't insist that he give us what we want, happiness, wealth, family, relationships, but instead we surrender to him and say, you know what's best. It's what you want not what I want. Because Jesus' identity as the Lord of creation and Lord of our lives is objective, not subjective. If we insist that he give us what we want, we may end up rejecting him a few days later. But if we see him for who he is and surrender to him, we'll be able to live with the peace of knowing our Lord, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Jesus, we invite you into our hearts and our lives. We affirm again. Uh, We thank you again for going to the cross for us. Now, put in our hearts the ability to see you clearly, to not miss you, and to have the, the confidence to surrender to you, knowing that, you know what's best, and that you want only the best for us. Jesus, we thank you for what this week means for our lives today and for all of eternity. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.